It is about that season, folks. It is about time in the year to start photographing brown bears of North America. Very excited for that. That means Alaska. That means wilderness. Well, it means more than Alaska. It means Yellowstone and Glacier National Park, but all sorts of grand wildernesses here in North America. But the reality is a lot of these lessons I'm going to tell you about today for photographing bears, they're really general for bears around the world. We're, we're talking about fuzzy, charismatic megafauna that have pretty similar qualities, whether you're talking about Bornean sun bears, polar bears. There are a lot of similarities with these photo lessons across the spectrum. So not just appropriate now going into the summer in North America, getting prepped to photograph grizzlies, aka brown bears in Alaska, but all across the world, really at any time of year. So without further ado, let's get right into it. My tips and tricks for photographing bears. First thing, let's talk about the gear you need. Uh, I'm mainly going to be talking about lenses. One of the first questions I get when doing any sort of bear photography expedition is, well, what's what's the best lens? What kind of lenses do I need to bring with me? Well, it really is very subjective as a anything is really with photographic lenses and your priorities. Like what kind of photos do you like? But in general, I think that you do need a three or 400 millimeter at least. And this is going to go for whether you're sitting on stools in geographic bay for grizzly bears off the Katmai coast in the Kodiak region, whether it's at platforms like the famous Brook Falls or McNeil River, whether it's even lesser known places in Southeast Alaska, like Annan Creek and other viewing areas for brown bears. Generally, you want something at least three, 400 millimeters. I'm finding that my trusty 100 to 400 is pretty darn fantastic. I truly rarely want anything over 400 millimeters. Now, that all being said, there's an adage that you can never have enough zoom with wildlife photography or telephoto, I should say. Uh, and that's pretty true with bears. So, you know, the more the better, but you don't want to skip out. You don't want to miss out on that wide end of the spectrum because that is really, really important to get in that 100 millimeter category because there are a ton of great photos as you'll listen and learn here for bears in that wider end of the spectrum. And of course, you know, with any sort of telephoto zoom, like your 100 to 400, complementing it with a 24 to 105 is pretty paramount. Um, I think one of the most captivating photos of bears today is getting that landscape photo, getting that bear in the landscape shot, rather than just filling the frame with the bear from edge to edge. Although it's still a great shot, it's becoming, you know, a little bit more common to see that. Therefore, to differentiate yourself as a photographer, whether it's for yourself, for friends, for family, or for magazines and publications, is to get that habitat shot. So making sure you have that wide end of the spectrum. I don't think a 16 to 35, you know, ultra wide is ever really necessary. There's always going to be an interesting opportunity with it, but 24 millimeters tends to be plenty wide. Uh, getting back into the other end of the spectrum, what about your super telephotos? What about your 500 F4s, your 600 F4s? What about some of these 200 to 600s? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Short answer, those things are great. When we get into the big super telephotos, the uh, I don't want to say super zooms, but those, those big telephoto lenses that you might commonly think of that are reminiscent of bazookas. The issue with those is portability and the ease with which you can photograph. So 
A lot of times bear viewing is in remote locations. You might have to hike in, walk into areas. And so just think about that when you're needing a tripod, when you're needing a monopod to support these lenses. Yes, a 600 millimeter F4 prime lens is phenomenal. Let me tell you, it's great. A 400 millimeter F2.8 is superb. However, just think about that when you're hiking in with 10 to 15 pounds of camera gear around your neck, you might be wading through mud flats, you might be walking on extensive boardwalks, you might be doing multiple miles a day, that lesser weighted 100 to 400, 100 to 500, 150 to 600, um, these, these lenses are lighter, they're more versatile, and they're going to probably be easier to carry. So just think about that while I could say, you know, the absolute best lens is a 300 2.8 or 400 2.8, a 600 F4. Um, they're, they're not necessarily the best because you've got to lug those things around. Um, so just consider that as you're, as you're photographing. Now in the middle of all that, there is a big question with your sort of your venerable 70 to 200 F2.8. What about that? Where does that fit into the picture? Well, it definitely has a place. I wouldn't say it, it supersedes or replaces a 100 to 400 or even 70 to 300. You do want some more telephoto than 200. 200 is, in my opinion, not quite enough. If you are shooting on a crop frame sensor, um, like Canon's Rebel series or Nikon's 7000 series, or really, you know, it, Google your camera and see if it's a crop frame. <laughs> uh, it's going to have a multiplier effect on your lens focal length. And so sometimes what that means is that your 200 millimeter, your 70 to 200 is actually more like a 280 or a 300 millimeter. In which case I might say, yeah, you know what? That's worth bringing. That F2.8 that it gives you is worth having a little bit less distance, a little bit less telephoto power for that 2.8. And all of a sudden, that 7200 has a really, really strong place in your kit. If you were shooting on a full frame camera, it's a little bit less important. Um, if you can get a shot at 7200, meaning it's, it's the right lens distance wise, it's going to be the best lens every time. But chances are it's not going to be the right distance, but for 20, 30% of your shots with bears, you will get close. You can get close. They are a big animal. So I don't want to discourage you from bringing it, but just keep in mind something in that three, 400, even 500 millimeter range is really going to be my top priority. So let's get into some of the lessons around photographing bears. The first thing, this is kind of a glaring error that a lot of people make when photographing bears. So the first shot that I'm going to want to try to get, or anybody's going to try to get is that big full frame edge to edge shot. When I say full frame here, I mean the bear's head or body is taking up the entire frame. Full frame cameras are a different thing. Full frame shot, meaning like it's just a big shot. It's edge to edge. The whole frame has a bear in it or parts of the bear, maybe just its head, maybe it's just its forehead and eyes and nose. Um, a lot of people will do this and then they will go into that photo with traditional wildlife portraiture settings. You know, they might be shooting at F4, F2.8 even, keeping it F5.6. Those are great settings if that bear is half your frame or a quarter of the frame and you're trying to intentionally blur the foreground and background. Really, really good settings for that. However, if you're filling the frame, especially if you're trying to photograph a bear's face and head head on, you got to treat that bear's face as if it's like an entire mountain range. And what are you going to do if you're photographing an entire mountain range? You're going to up that aperture. You're going to go to F8, maybe even F11. It seems really odd when you're photographing wildlife to get really big depths of field because oftentimes we're trying to push our lens to the opposite end of the spectrum. We're trying to get really shallow to help isolate that subject, to help 
make that bear look sharper. But if you are going for that edge to edge composition of a bear, whether it's the whole body, whether it's the whole face, and you want the eyes in focus as well as the nose, as well as the ears, as well as the shoulders, you're going to have to go pretty big with your aperture F8, F11. That's my recommendation. Again, it's something that trips a lot of people up because people aren't thinking that you want to have a big F number for what is kind of considered wildlife portraiture. But again, when it fills the majority of the frame, go big with your F number, go for a deep depth of field. The next thing is the antithesis of that kind of shot. So I love those shots. They're big, they're aesthetic, they're artsy. They really make a a strong impression to the viewer. So I love them. Get them if you can. However, some of the best shots that I take home with me, I don't even realize until I put them on the computer. And those are going to be your habitat shots, these beautiful sweeping landscapes of meadows, mud flats, grasslands, mountains with the bear in it. And I I have to admit, they don't look that good in the back of the camera. When you take that shot, it's not that satisfying ooh and ah afterward because you can't really see the bear. It's in a one-inch screen in the back of your camera. You don't you don't know how big of an impression it's gonna make when you blow it up on the computer or or crop it in even or or share it otherwise. But they are some of my favorite shots. They they are super powerful. And more than anything, it's a shot that you can only get by being in the bear's natural habitat. I think sometimes we get carried away with these, these strong impression photos where the bear is filling the frame and it's big and it's powerful and it just seems really impactful. But the problem is, is you don't really know where it's at. Is it in Alaska? Is it in the Denver Zoo? Like, who knows? We don't really, we don't know anything about that animal, about the habitat. And when you're in a place as great as Alaska, Yellowstone, Glacier National Park, and you see a bear or bears, plural, you want to you wanna tell the viewer what's going on. Look at the majesty of the surroundings. So, so zooming out is a huge, huge thing you have to force yourself to do. And that, that's why I love these zoom telephotos so much, these 100 to 400, 100 to 500, 200 to 600, is because I'll be shooting at 100 often. Um, I'll be putting my 24 to 105 off and, and I will be shooting with that bear is just a small little part of the frame. And so the lesson here is not so much how to take these shots, you know, use your typical rules of composition, incorporate the mountain, get the foreground, you know, do the big depth of field, just like the previous lesson, you know, that big depth of field that shows the bear in focus and the mountains in focus and the mud flats in focus. It's not so much the lesson, like everybody knows how to take this photo. It's a pretty state straightforward. It's very easy as far as settings go, but it's forcing yourself to zoom out. And I think that's the hardest thing to do when you're on any sort of wildlife safari because you are so close and you do want to get that that really, really fascinating shot. So again, nothing too crazy to know about how to showcase habitat with bears in it uh, or bears in their natural habitat, but just know it's a key consideration. You want to plan on it. You want to force yourself away from those big shots Take your zoom off, put on your 24 to 105 if you need to, to force yourself to zoom out and think wide. Another thing that I love to do is play with exposure, especially with big animals, especially with animals that have distinct color fur. So the dark brown or the dark blacks of black bears, the browns of the brown bears, of course. Uh, But even things like polar bears, you have distinctly white, light cream colored fur. What I like to do is play around with exposures to manually overexpose or underexpose shots. And what this allows me to do is really exaggerate and highlight the animal. Sometimes what you might have is as a dark bear in the shadows with light sand or a light river around it, overexpose the heck out of that shot. 
focus and meter on the bear itself to evenly expose the bear at the expense of the background, at the expense of the surroundings. So the water, the field, the meadow is completely blown out. Um, go the exact other direction. Photograph a polar bear or a light-colored brown bear and underexpose the shot significantly such that only the bear comes out in relative exposure where the surroundings are completely dark, untextured, almost no data in it. It doesn't work all the time, but trying it is really, really fun. So think about overly dramatic lighting in your shots. Of course, part of this is gonna be the surroundings, what's going on in the environment. Is the background light, is it dark? Can you force this exposure in one way or the other? But trying big, big differences like minus two or three stops, overexposed by two or three stops, maybe even more. And what you're going to find is that with different exposure levels of the bear of the background, you might get some really interesting shots out of it. Another lesson when you're photographing bears, do not forget at the start of the day or the start of the trip to put on burst mode on your camera. Uh, this is also known as the high drive motor or high drive speed. You want to make sure you take a relatively plentiful amount of photos per second when you're photographing bears. Uh, this could even be if the bear is just walking or sitting or barely doing anything. It's not just for the action shots. It's not just when bears are sparring or mothers and cubs are playing around with one another. Burst mode or high drive motor mode is really good for just about any shot. When I talk about fast frame rate speeds, I'm thinking of something like six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 frames a second. Not all cameras will get to that high, but I'm deliberately not talking about two frames a second. That's not really what I'm getting at is if that's the fastest your camera can go, then so be it. That's great. Maximize it. But what I do caution against is being careful not to shoot at like 20 or 30 frames a second. You can certainly do so, but just be aware that's a lot of editing. It's a lot of viewing of photos and it's a lot of memory. So you could run out of a memory card really quickly. And if you are not used to using burst mode and you just put it on the, the high drive motor plus, like the highest one they have, all of a sudden you're out of memory in the morning before you can even change memory cards. Not a good thing to realize on the trip. The settings I shoot on, I shoot on full manual, but auto ISO. I love this for all wildlife, really all photography. And it's something that I came across a few years back and I find it's, it's the best way to take photos. The full manual mode allows me access to full aperture control, full shutter speed control, but I don't have to worry about the ISO. I just want the ISO to be dialed in by the camera, by the camera's computer, to give me an evenly exposed shot. So that still allows me to use the camera's hyper-intelligent evaluative metering mode. So it's monitoring and evaluating for all the different lights and darks in the scene. Yet I'm able to say what my depth of field is. Do I want it to be F4? Do I want it to be F7.1, F11? I can tell it how deep the depth of field. And I also can shoot on the shutter speed that I want, most of the time, that is the minimum shutter speed to freeze the motion, to freeze the action. If I'm shooting a landscape shot with bears in it and the bear is a small little grain of sand in the corner of the scene, I can probably get away with one over 320, one 320th of a second. That's a great general landscape speed. It's going to freeze your hand motion. It's going to freeze any swaying grasses enough that, you know, with a wide angle lens, it's not going to show up in the scene. And that's also going to really lower your ISO. What I've found with this combination, this manual plus auto ISO, is I'm getting way lower ISOs than I would have otherwise had I dialed in my ISO just to be safe. For instance, if I'm going into a scene and I'm photographing moving bears, sparring bears, without this auto ISO option, I would immediately think, okay, I've got to be at ISO 800, 1600, 
you know, to, to get as much light in my scene as possible, to get as fast of a shutter speed as possible. But really, I'm setting an ISO in order to give me a fast shutter speed. Why not just give me a fast shutter speed and let the camera figure out the ISO? What I'm finding happens when that when I dial that in, when I make that happen, is the ISO ends up being like half what I would have thought it'd be. If I know I need one sixteen hundredth of a second shutter speed to freeze uh, a running bear or a walking bear, maybe even sparring bears at two thousandth of a second, my ISO, you know, normally I would think, oh gosh, 3,200. Yeah, I'm getting like ISO 1,000. That's giving me a better quality photo each and every time, manual plus auto ISO. Generally speaking, Going forward, I'm shooting on auto white balance with warming effect. So it's actually a little AWBW is the nomenclature. It's like a warm auto white balance, which I like a lot because I've, I've been shooting on cloudy or shady white balance for many, many years. And I've always preferred that. I prefer a warmer look in my photos. However, I don't know if it's just the way the cameras are getting or it's just my own tolerance, but I noticed them getting really quite yellow. And then I would be dialing them back in the camera or dialing them back on Photoshop. And I'm noticing them changing the colors a lot. This new warm auto is kind of like the best of both worlds. It's definitely still of a cooler look than a cloudy white balance, but it's this nice effect where it's not a real cold auto. I found that auto white balance back in the day was a very, very blue cold look. Um, but now it's a little bit warm. It's nice and even, and I can adjust saturation and vibrance and white balance on the computer after the fact. When it comes to setting up your photos, we were talking about, you know, your big edge to edge composition of bears, faces, of habitat shots with the bear in it. Always start with the rule of thirds. That's the main composition tip to start off with. Rule of thirds is king. It, there's a reason behind it. It all has to do with aesthetics and this idea of a ratio of 1.61 to 1, kind of matching the Fibonacci spiral. Rules are always meant to be broken. So don't think that you have to align every single photo that you ever take of bears with the rule of thirds, but it's a fantastic place to start. If you have a bear in your scene, in your environment, in your habitat, placed at the lower right-hand intersection of those, of those lines. If you're photographing a mountain with a bay with a sky, put that mountain in the middle, sky in the upper third, bay in the lower third. That's what we're talking about with the rule of thirds. But one thing to think about when we're looking at big edge-to-edge -edge composition is that those rules still apply. If you have the eyes and the nose and the ears, think about those in thirds as well. Ears in the upper third, eyes in the middle third, nose in the lower third. Be very, very specific. If you can't do that in camera, not to worry. Shoot a little bit wider than you otherwise would and then do it on the computer. Crop in and adjust it. You can actually have that rule of thirds grid on your crop tool on the computer. And what you can do is shoot wider, crop in, and then make sure that those eyes are perfectly on that upper third line. You can make sure that that nose goes right over that lower third line. It makes a really, really great composition tool if you shoot wider and adhere to the rule of thirds when you're post-processing. But a great way to break these rules, all rules are meant to be broken, is when you're shooting that bear in the landscape. If you're putting that bear, that small bear in a huge Alaskan landscape, I like to do what I call exaggerated composition shots. This is where I put that bear in the very, very tip top bottom of the frame, very, very tip top left of the frame, somewhere, you know, anywhere in the photo that is way outside the rule of thirds to show the enormity of the landscape. You're seeing this big bear, this 1200 pound bear, 
in just a small sliver of the bottom of the frame, and it makes this incredible impression for the viewer. So there are times to break the rule thirds. That's a great one, specifically with bears in landscapes. Put that bear way outside those third lines and see what happens. You might like it. Last tip here, we're gonna get a bonus tip for silky water at Brooks Falls. If you're going to Alaska for a bear adventure, there's a decent chance you've heard of Brooks Falls or are going to Brooks Falls, and it is one of the quintessential places to photograph bears. Not the only, there are many, many, and you can't do it all in one trip. So if you're not going there, just think about it for next time, or maybe employ these techniques if you're gonna be at any other sort of waterfall or, or body of water with brown bears. After all, they are coastal brown bears, so there's a good chance they're around water. But specifically with moving water, I love the shots of these brown bears at the top of the falls feeding on salmon with that white water rushing below them. And here's how to get that silky waterfall effect with brown bears at Brooks Falls. So first of all, you want to get to the, the lower platform. There are two platforms. There's the upper platform, and the lower platform has that great side profile vantage point of those bears. When you get there, you might have to be patient. Bears aren't always at the top of the falls. In fact, it's not actually the best feeding area for bears. The big dominant bears, the bears that win Fat Bear Week are usually down in the, the quote-unquote jacuzzi pools. Um, Otis and some of the other really venerable, recognizable bears are down there, and they make it look so easy. But oftentimes, some of the younger bears, some of the females will be up above the falls, and really those are the shots you want to get. So what you're going to want to do is make sure you can control the shutter speed. You can be on manual plus auto ISO. It's still a great setting. Just use your aperture at something very moderate like f5.6, f8, but your shutter is the main thing you're going to control. And you're going to experiment with it. You're going to try different things. The speed of your shutter in order to blur that water is going to be entirely commensurate with the speed of the water. In other words, really, really fast moving water, you can get away with a faster shutter speed, like a 1 over 40, 1 over 50. You wouldn't think of that as a traditionally sh uh, slow shutter speed, one over 40, one over 50 is actually somewhat fast. But if that water is rushing like it oftentimes is at Brooks Falls, you can get away with a pretty good shot at one over 40. So start there. Um, that's going to give you the most defense or most protection against hand movement. You are not allowed to have tripods on the platform. So unfortunately, you have to brace against the railing. But at one over 40, you can probably handhold it and start to see what the effect is. And then you're going to start slowing down more and more shots, slowing down, slowing down, slowing down. And really the, the peak shot, in my opinion, is in around like a half a second to a full second. The issue here is a couple things. One is that if you have a really, really bright, sunny day, you're not going to be able to use a high enough aperture to compensate for all that light flowing into your camera at such a long shutter speed. Again, another reason why 1 over 30, 1 over 40 is a pretty good starting point. So if you're at a half a second exposure, you may need to be at f22. But let's assume that everything's good. It's a somewhat cloudy day, nice even lighting, and, and you're not being blown out of the water with brightness. The next difficult thing is getting that bear to sit still. <laughs> uh, you have no control over this. Uh, the bear does what it wants, and you absolutely shouldn't have control over it. Uh, if you did, we'd have a problem. But the idea is you have to basically shoot enough photos in order to get lucky for that half a second, the bear not to be moving at all. Now, fortunately, of all places in the world that bears are hunting or feeding on salmon and remain still for a few moments, this is one of them. So you can definitely get the shot. It just may require some trial, practice, patience, et cetera, et cetera. But let's say you do have this issue where it's a bright bluebird day. Uh, that's not a problem. That's a good problem to have. Those, those days in Alaska can be rare and they're absolutely spectacular. You can get some other great photos because of that blue sky. But what it's going to 
require you to do is probably put on a neutral density filter. So this is one of these filters that I still bring with me. And I still recommend you pick up before an Alaska trip if you plan on photographing moving water like at Brooks Falls or other waterfalls. McNeil River comes to mind. They are basically sunglass tints for your lens. Uh, a neutral density 4 or 6 rating, so 4, just the numeral 4, or 6, is a good place because it's just a moderate tinting. So what this allows you to do is photograph in bright sun with a long exposure without having a super high aperture. F22 is fine, F16 is fine, however, you do start to get lower and lower quality of your photo, you start to push out those megapixels and you actually end up with a lower megapixel shot. There's not enough room for the, all those defined pixels in an F22 shot. So you actually don't really wanna shoot at that big F number all the time or really ever, unless a few special circumstances, but you don't wanna be forced to, that's the point. You don't wanna to have to shoot F22 just because you're limiting sunlight. So slap on a little neutral density filter. They are great, they're really handy. You don't have to get a very expensive one. Uh, and yeah, great, great use out in Alaska. So there you have it, some really quick tips on photographing bears coming up this summer season. I definitely did slant this a bit more to brown bears, these coastal browns of Alaska, just because that's what's on my mind. But you'll notice that these bear photo techniques really work for any bear photography in the world. You wanna have a big depth of field for those big face full frame shots. You wanna focus and get bears in the landscape. You wanna force yourself to zoom out you want to use creative control over the exposure. You don't have a lot of creative control with bears because there's a very specific feature that you're trying to showcase. It's the bear, it's the landscape. But what you can do is you can be very artistic and very dramatic with the exposure. Try in a variety of settings, extreme over and under exposures, just to get the hang of it, just to understand what I'm trying to tell you to do. This is one of the big tough things with podcasts and photography is I can't show you what I'm talking about. You're going to have to experiment on your own, but I'm talking about plus three stops, minus three stops in exposure. Try it with your next bear photo. Make sure you have on burst mode, shoot on manual plus ISO, use that rule of thirds to start off with and break those rules exaggerate composition when feasible. And then if you are at Brooks Falls, get that silky waterfall. And I hope you have an amazing time this summer photographing bears wherever in the world you might find yourself. Until next time. <laughs>